0: On this episode of the Haunted Objects Podcast...
1: I want to touch that egg. I do
2: too. Oh,
1: John Lennon's egg, do you alien think, egg.
2: Do you think Uri would let us touch that egg? Nope. I'm going to touch that egg. <laughs> I'm going to touch that egg. I want to touch that f***ing egg.
0: From deep inside the mysterious archives of the New Kirk Museum of the Paranormal. It's the Haunted Objects Podcast.
2: Dana, have you ever experienced that thing where you have an item and you lose track of it and it appears at a random time later in a place that you definitely couldn't have put it?
1: Yes. I have two instances of this. The first one is a tarot deck that I keep a piece of moldavite in. And moldavite, for those who don't know, is a really popular tektite. It is uh, pretty expensive and small.
2: What the f is a tektite?
1: It is a piece of glass oh. that, so a meteor crashed on a beach, you know, millions of years ago. And it melted the sand and it created this green glass. And it's really popular on TikTok. A lot of people will use it. Uh, and so I have a really small piece of it that I, I keep in a specific tarot deck. And it moved from one box tarot deck to another. Whoa. So there's that. And then I also have uh, had tarot decks or specifically the Thoth deck that I'm learning they, uh cards will move on their own. And I keep them in order because I'm trying to learn the system. And so I don't ever give myself readings with it or anything, but they just appear in different spots.
2: Pretty interesting that those are both things that you use in your practice. Yeah, and they're both
1: tarot-related, which is kind
2: disappearing of disappearing. Yeah. and
3: reappearing. It's very weird. What about you, Carl? I know that I've had those kind of a moments... Where, you know, something goes missing in the the house and everyone's searching for it. And a week later, you find it like in the basement on like the treadmill or something. Yeah. You know? Like, I, mm-hmm. I know I've had those sort of moments before, but one of the weirder kind of like things that appeared that shouldn't be there moments for me, it was probably in high school. Uh, we were sitting on the couch Friday night watching TV with the family and a drop of water fell from the ceiling and hit me in the arm or the leg, touched it. It was a little wet so spot weird. like water and you know, you look up and it's like a normal fine ceiling. There mm-hmm. was no mark on it. There yeah. was no leak like zero idea where this water drop could have possibly so it just, come from.
1: Just came out of nowhere. Yeah. Weird.
2: I had almost the same thing happen to me, but yours sounds better cuz mine was like a viscous fluid like snot. That's
1: so Ugh. weird. I and remember it landed when that on happened. my
2: arm. Yeah. This was post Hellier like yeah. mid season 2 kind of timeline too, so I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but that was disgusting.
1: Yeah, and it was in your office.
2: It's in my office. And it kind
1: of, same thing like no nothing weird about the ceiling like you weren't Yeah. Like, it's just Wasn't very a weird
2: storm or no. something. No. No. And I I looked up To see if there was anything on the ceiling, nothing on the ceiling. But this was like snot.
1: Yeah, it was like... like Ectoplasm. My
2: Ghostbusters dreams were coming true.
1: Ghostbusters, what do you want? He
2: slimed you. He did. I got slimed.
1: You did get slimed.
2: Today we're talking about that exact phenomenon. You might not know that it has an actual name. This is something that has existed at least since the 1800s, but... Even if you're invested in the paranormal, you might not know the name of this. It's called an apport. And today we're talking about arguably the very beginning of the Newkirk Museum of the Paranormal. The first item that I ever collected was a piece of coal that apported into my forehead during a ghost hunt in a haunted cemetery.
0: In the long and storied history of parapsychology, few mysteries rival that of apportations, the sudden and inexplicable appearance of ordinary objects. For centuries, small everyday items have been reported to manifest out of nowhere during moments of high strangeness, defying the laws of physics and challenging our very perceptions of reality. In the early 2000s, one such appertation event occurred in a long-forgotten mining cemetery high atop a mountain in rural Pennsylvania. It was there, during a late-night search for spirits, that a group of curious teens found themselves beneath an inexplicable rain of stones, which fell from the empty, moonlit sky. Where do these apports originate, and how can they elude the constraints of space and time? Is apportation a spiritualist parlor trick, a product of extrasensory powers, or? Are these mysterious objects a genuine manifestation of the supernatural? Perhaps the answers can be found in an untold tale from Barclay Mountain Cemetery.
2: So in order to tell this story, Mm -hmm. which is going to be the bulk of today's episode, Probably, arguably, my best ghost story. Yeah. It needs a little bit of setup.
1: So wait, are you telling people, get your tea? Yep. It's a little story time. It is story time. Get your cozies on. Mm -hmm. Not if you're driving. Don't do that. (laughs) But you're going to take us on a little journey. I'm going to take you on a
2: journey. It's going to have a few detours. Mm -hmm. We're going to learn some stuff. But I promise that the end of this ghost story is a banger. It's a good one. To set this up. We have to go back to about 2000, the year 2000. Yeah. My friends and I just a year or two earlier had formed our, our ghost hunting team, Ghost Hunters Incorporated.
1: Mm-hmm. Were you incorporated?
2: No, we didn't even know what that word meant.
1: It just sounded cool.
2: It sounded cool. Yeah. So we, as Ghost Hunters Incorporated, we're sneaking out. We used to do this thing where we would have sleepovers and we'd all go to each other's houses for sleepovers so nobody really knew where we were mm-hmm. and then we would hide in a field usually we we're hanging out at our friend matt's house we would go hide in the field at like midnight after all of our parents had gone to bed and we'd wait for jason gallon to flash his headlights two or three times and mm-hmm. then you would just see all of these teens pop up out of the field and go running towards the car because mm-hmm. <laughs> jason was a real man he was a little older mm-hmm. and then we would go out and we would uh I mean, we can call it ghost hunting, but it was really just going out trying to get scared, hanging yeah. out in a- abandoned cemeteries and abandoned houses and stuff like that.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, we found a place once that still to this day has provided me with some of the most stunning experiences I've ever had. Yeah. It's a place nestled away in the mountains in the middle of Bradford County, nothing around for miles. It's all the only thing that happens up there is there's like hunting cabins and stuff. But it's a place called Barclay Mountain. Mm-hmm. Barclay Mountain used to be, back in the 1800s, a huge coal mining operation. There were uh, all these trains that went up to Barclay Mountain. that are, They got washed away in the early 1900s. The only thing that exists, they used to have saloons. They used to have hotels. There were churches. Ju- it's just now the only thing that exists are uh, some old abandoned mines and then this cemetery, this old mining cemetery.
1: So you're saying like at one point in time, it was a thriving community. It was huge. There were lots of people living there. Yeah. There was lots of settlements. Mm-hmm. It was just like a very populated, dense area.
2: Yeah, it was founded officially in 1867, 1867. It was gone thirty five years later. Wow! Um, not didn't even last till the nineteen hundreds. Wow! And it, uh, I think, at the peak, they say there could have been around three thousand people that were there.
1: It's hard to imagine that there were that many people living there. I know, right? And and then You've then you, been there. Then you walk, you know, through the area, and you're like, "Oh, wait a minute!" But like, it's hard to imagine that yeah. there would be that many people living up there because it's not easy living up there like you're oh, on a it's mountain it's hard to
2: get to yeah. the roads aren't even paved to yeah. get to it that was the other thing a bunch of teenagers in really shitty cars should not have been yeah. going up to this place we, we tried to go up there in the winter no one
1: time that's a bad idea we
2: got stuck we had to hike up to the cemetery to get to the cemetery yeah we loved this place yes it was like our super secret ghost hunting spot that was amazing to describe this place it was like something out of a Hollywood movie because it's up on the top of this mountain. It was overgrown. You couldn't even see half the headstones. There was just a single one lane dirt road that you had to take. I mean, like half a mile that got down to where this was. It was a dead end. Old, old sign had been like, I mean, nothing was in, in a good state. Everything was in a state of disrepair. And, there was a can't like the canopy of trees opens up in the middle so if you were there on like a full moon yeah the whole place was lit up and it was just high enough that the fog would hang right down by about your waist yeah so it looked like a movie set it yeah. was scary as hell especially when you're like 15 16 years old terrifying this place became the site of so many of our stories, we've experienced people getting pushed in that place, getting tapped. We used to hear the sound of a pickaxe just ringing through the night like somebody was mining in a mine.
1: And I think that the important detail to mention also is that now, today, no one really, like lives up there there's like a few hunting cabins there's some hunting
2: cabins up there
1: when you're up there you're alone for miles and miles and miles and miles so it is incredibly isolated
2: as kids we believed that the reason the town didn't exist anymore is because it was wiped out by a plague uh the cemetery is mostly children that's the thing it's tons and tons of kids
1: there's a lot of kids there
2: but the truth of the matter is, really, that it was they ran out of coal. Yeah. They ran out of coal. They tapped the place out, which is kind of funny because the same sort of thing is happening to my hometown right now, um, where natural gas companies have come in, yeah. tapped it all out, and then left. And so, like, the, there's nobody moving to my town. There's yeah. nobody moving out there. It's kind of dying. Yeah, it's they're just sad. sort of
1: having to figure out what to do next.
2: It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. One night, we'd been there a few times we decided let's like take the whole team. And by the whole team, Ghost Hunters Inc. had probably like 20 people in it. Yeah, it it was a lot. Depending on who was available.
1: Just a lot of (laughs) teens, a lot of youths. A lot
2: of youths.
1: Rural youths driving around looking for things to to get into.
2: We all met at the Dandy Mini Mart downtown. It was the only, I say downtown, there's one stoplight in the town that I grew up in. There's no one there. We met at the uh, t- one 24-hour gas station, and we piled into two cars. We piled into my friend Mick Coladas and then uh, so half of us piled into our friend Bo Garrison's. I think so, he was driving like a neon.
1: So what year would this have been?
2: This was 2001.
1: Okay. This so was like
2: summer 2001, all late right. summer. I don't even know if we—this might have been one of our last hurrahs before we went back to high school.
1: That makes sense.
2: We all meet up. We grab all of our Slim Jims and our Mountain Dews and— <laughs> We had a ton. For some reason, we went through this phase where we carried a ton of weaponry with us. Yes,
1: you did. I've seen (laughs) photos of... You also carried a curtain rod, and I think Nick Faust had a Civil War sword. He had a Civil
2: War sword. Jason
1: Gowan had a crossbow, possibly. He had a crossbow. crossbow?
2: In shop class, what we used to do is we used to make crossbow darts that yeah. were like wooden stakes because we started ghost hunting just because we were larping as vampire hunters yes yeah. that's where that all came from
1: you, I'm, it is incredible that not one of you was like lost your eye in a crossbow accident oh
2: very close <laughs> very very close I mean yeah. I've watched I watched the crossbow go off and shoot right past Nick Faust's head
1: yeah Nick should have definitely lost an eye. <laughs> For sure. <laughs>
2: so we all Shout meet. Shout out
1: Nick Faust. Shout
2: out Nick Faust. We're glad you're still alive. Yeah,
1: we're glad you're alive, Nick Faust.
2: <laughs> but We had torches. Like, it is insane. BB guns. Just two cars packed to the hilt with teenagers sugared up on Mountain Dew holding like medieval weaponry.
1: Here's the thing, though. And I'm not going to give any spoilers because you're telling the story, but... It probably is good that you had those things when you consider this story that you're about to hear. It uh, is. It's probably good that you were all uh, protected with uh, medieval weaponry.
2: It is. It was about a 45-minute drive for us to get from my town of Troy up the mountain, up to Barkley Mountain. Yeah. So we are on our way up there. We're psyching ourselves up. We used to listen to Art Bell. Yeah, what were you listening to? We would listen to Art Bell. Sometimes we would listen to like... I I mean, we were all into Rammstein back then. Yeah. So we were like listening to that, like thinking we're super badass. Yeah,
1: you got your weapons.
2: So we're driving up this mountain and we get to the turn off where you turn off down the single lane dirt road mm-hmm. to get to this place.
1: And so was this this was at like one o'clock in the morning? I'm Middle
2: assuming. of the night, one in the morning. Yeah. Bunch of
1: kids all jacked up on sugar and mountain dews. We get and about Ramstein.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we get about halfway down that single lane road. Mm-hmm and these headlights flip on
1: that is my biggest nightmare
2: and you need to know like this is middle of the week yeah there's we've never seen anyone else up there even during the day. I was
1: going to ask. So you you had been up there yeah. many times and you'd never seen another person. No,
2: because we would go up there even like around the area. We'd go looking for the abandoned mine shafts because sure. we wanted to go and s- go into the mines and see what was in there. Yeah, I mean we were everywhere and we never ever run into anybody up okay. there. At least back then.
1: Yeah, and you did grow up in a pretty rural place. Like it's yeah, pr- it's a very small town. It's More cows very, than people. Yeah, very very kind of rural
2: area. Those lights flip on and we're all like what the there f-? mm. what's somebody doing up here yeah
1: it's never good when the headlights just flip on we, out of nowhere
2: we thought well maybe somebody came up here to go parking yeah cuz we used to go like we go look for parkers and we
1: parkers would, can you explain cuz you sound like you're 80 what what that means but just
2: kids fooling around in people, their in the cars at night people doing
1: it in their cars yeah. yeah
2: we used we had like a gorilla suit and we would yeah. scare people so we just thought like okay well let's get the gorilla suit out but, this is
1: all true also because the other thing is Greg obsessively <laughs> filmed his entire <laughs> life. And so there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours yeah. of JHI's of antics um, oh, yeah. in Troy, Pennsylvania.
2: So we're sitting there on our walkie-talkies talking to each other like, what do we do? Uh, oh, I guess we just wait. So we just sat there. And there so must scary. have been five minutes that went by where it's just us staring at these headlights. Yeah. These headlights staring at us.
1: Yeah. Everybody's going, like, what's gonna, what's happening now? Like, what's going to happen?
2: And then the headlights start coming towards us, and we pull over as far as we can without going into the ditch too bad where we couldn't get out. Yeah. And this, this truck starts creeping towards Ooh. us very, very slowly. I mean, it was so close because that road is so, so small. Yeah, yeah. Real close to us, and this guy in the truck. Did you see him? Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: my God.
2: Glaring at us. <gasps> like he's sizing us all up. Yeah. But there's, you know, there's two carloads of kids holding weapons. Yeah. And and he just kind of, you know, keeps yeah. on going and then he's gone. Okay. And we all looked at each other like that's fucking weird. There's, yeah. there's just a single guy. There wasn't anybody else in the truck. So he was
1: just by himself at one o'clock in the morning. Just
2: sitting at this cemetery, this abandoned cemetery in the middle of f- nowhere.
1: During the week.
2: During the week.
1: That's some shady, shady vibes. Right?
2: right so yeah. we're and like, big, okay, shady vibes. I don't know what to make about that, but whatever. Yeah. The whole time, our friend Nick wanted us to go and explore this other area that was kind of across from the cemetery entrance. Yeah, but we're all like, "You're an idiot, Nick. There's nothing down there. That's yeah. just a that's just a trail that doesn't go anywhere. The
3: bodies are buried over here, you <laughs> dumbass. That's yeah. exactly <laughs> it. What are you doing? Yeah,
2: the spooky stuff is over here. Yeah. Because at the time you're like, oh, ghosts, they hang out in a cemetery, which doesn't make they're... any f-ing sense to you yeah. now. You know, you're
1: you're like ghosts obviously want to stay with their bodies. Why, yeah, why exactly. would we want <laughs> yeah. to watch our, our physical bodies DK? just rot?
2: That sounds kind of fun, actually. So we're in the cemetery. And then all of a sudden we start to feel like these uh, like we're getting hit mm-hmm. with with I don't know, I guess we originally thought, oh, these are like acorns or something falling yeah. from the trees.
1: Yeah, because it's true. When you're in the cemetery, like you described, it is. A, there are trees, they're so old and they're huge and they're kind of interwoven throughout the headstones. So you really do get like very little sky yeah. except when you're right in the middle because that canopy kind of parts a little right bit. so yeah it would make sense that you'd think like acorns or like if it was late summer i mean just anything kind of falling from trees plus it's you're up on a mountain it's really windy usually so that makes total sense
2: yeah so we're we're like oh well, it must be acorns because we can't see what it is yeah. you know it's the middle of the night and uh eventually one of them just smacks me in my head yeah and i see it go Click. It hits me in the head and then I watch it fall Mm -hmm. and I reach down and I pick it up and it's a piece of coal. Yeah. Technically shale. Yeah. Um, And I thought, well, that's weird. Mm -hmm. So I put it in my pocket and I didn't really think much else of it. Yeah. We have a great ghost hunt. We got a bunch of EVPs. We're psyched. We had a great spooky night, which is the only thing we were looking for. Yeah. You know, we're just kids out looking for a spooky thrill. Yeah. And then we go home. A few days later the newspaper posts an article about a guy yeah pulled over at a lo- a local gas station yeah and the police take him in because
1: was it the dandy
2: It was the dandy. (gasps) He went to the
1: 24 hours. I
2: believe it was the dandy. Possibly. I have the newspaper article. Yeah, I can read it. This isn't the original one. This is one that came after this guy was sentenced.
1: Yeah, do you want me to read this?
2: Read this newspaper article. So this is
1: from 2001. Yep. It's called Bradford County Man Charged. Tawanda, PA, police have charged a Bradford County man in the execution-style killing of his neighbor whose body was found dumped in the woods more than a week after he disappeared. Frederick Roland House Jr., 41, of West Burlington Township, was charged with homicide and related charges, adding to theft and other charges lodged against him in August when he was accused of stealing and driving the pickup truck of his missing neighbor, Edward William Bond Jr. Bond was last seen alive on August 8th after an extensive search by local volunteers, game commissions official, and police. His corpse was found on Barkley Mountain in Franklin Township.
2: We were face <laughs> oh,
1: to boy. face
2: with that motherfucker yeah. after he dumped the body. Yeah, he, we were there at the same time.
1: Yeah, he was a hundred percent going. Can I? Can I kill all these? Kids? Oh, like, hundred percent. there were too many of us. Yeah, and you had you also had flails and yeah. you know swords and stuff. Oh
2: and, yeah, and we couldn't hide them because like you know Bill's there with like a big axe yeah. in his hand mm-hmm. that he'd like stolen from his parents' shed. Yeah, so. This guy probably just decided, well, there's too many of them. Yes. I, I hope nothing happens. Yeah. And that trail that Nick wanted us to go down <laughs> yeah. had that guy's body, Ed Bond's body, yeah. right there. So he had
1: he had killed his neighbor, loaded I, him up in the truck.
2: I think it was over a four-wheeler. It was over a four-wheeler, and I think he killed his neighbor, wow. uh, or he, this guy killed Ed... Yeah. And then was driving his truck around.
1: Oh, so it was his truck that he was driving. And the
2: rumor always was that the police thought it was suspicious because there was blood dripping out of the Ooh, truck bed. Allegedly. And then when they ran the plates. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't his. Wow. And that's what kind of caused this whole thing. Rick. Do you know how, like, we wouldn't be sitting here right now nope. if me and my friends had found that body? No, Nope. Because nope. <laughs> we would have had to tell our parents.
1: Yeah, Lori Faust never would have let Nick oh, out no. again.
2: She barely let him go as it was. We had to lie to our parents. <laughs> Shout out Lori Faust. I mean, that would have been it. The end of my ghost hunting career, yeah. done. We wouldn't be sitting here. Nope. I'd be an investment banker or something somewhere. Yeah,
1: it would be, you would all would have needed
2: boatloads of therapy therapy. i can't
1: even imagine how traumatized i think he shot
2: him a bunch of times too so it was probably not a a great sight
1: the key or what you're trying to say here is that we should never follow nick's intuition
0: (laughs) (laughs) are you in possession of a haunted object an antique spiritualist tool wreckage from a crashed ufo The Newkirk Museum of the Paranormal wants to add it to their archives. Whether your strange item is causing you paranormal problems or is simply a supernaturally significant relic worthy of curation, we want to hear from you. For more information on our acquisition process, visit (laughs) paramuseum.com.
2: So let's talk about aports yeah. as we continue down this journey because this will start to make more sense as we go there's more to that story. So we're
1: going uh, to If you more. can believe it
2: the dictionary definition of what an apport is mm-hmm. is the production of objects by apparently supernatural means at a spiritualist séance. Okay, So these were highly associated with spiritualism and like a spiritualist seance.
1: So it was something that if someone was taking part in a spiritualist seance, they could maybe anticipate something would happen and a yes. port would happen during the seance.
2: Yes. Okay. Yeah. And it happened a lot. So it was everything from like, you know, dimes and pennies and uh, sometimes little objects that mm-hmm. were meaningful to people. Uh, spiritualist mediums could quite often appear to be. Uh, produce these things. Yeah. Trinkets. And they had to come from somewhere else. One of the things that's easy to get confused is a port and materialization. So those are two different things. Sometimes that's used interchangeably, okay. but the truth of the matter is a materialization is something that was produced out of nothing. Okay. And an aport is something that comes from somewhere else. So it disappears from one place only to appear in another. By supernatural means.
1: Okay. So it pops in. Just pops in. From somewhere else.
2: And then somewhere else. One of the things our friend Tyler is always talking about when it comes to apports is, what if something apported out of the ocean? Is there just like a chunk of water missing? Yeah. Does the ocean get like an inch smaller?
1: Yeah. That's interesting.
2: The very first recorded account of an apport Mm -hmm. comes from a seance that happened in the early 19th century. Uh, It happened in Paris in 1819. At the seance were three somnambulists and a blind woman. I think the somnambulist is what they were calling mediums. Okay. And sometimes I think it's used interchangeably with like hypnotists, if I'm. Interesting. Because I think a lot of the time the early mediums were put under during hypnosis.
3: Somnambulism. Is uh is sleepwalking, I think. Oh so I think okay. that would kind of make sense with like a hypnotism, oh, you know, neat. as you're kind of sleepwalking in yeah. that trance state. God, so I think the... that's probably where that came that's
1: from. That's really cool. They had
3: the coolest terms for stuff back then. Yeah. We keep
2: learning them during this podcast. One of the Ciruses said she saw a dove flying around the room. It was carrying something in its beak, which it finally deposited before a person. When Billow examined the contents of the packet, he found three pieces of paper with a small bone glued to each, and beneath was written St. Maxine, St. Sabine, and many martyrs. That's weird. That's the first recorded account of an apport, and it was delivering holy relics. Weird. Isn't that crazy? That's cool, though. That's relatively early because the spiritualist movement didn't really start till the later 1800s, but people were getting weird stuff. They probably thought, I I know that one of the scientists that they showed it to was like, well, it's not ghosts. It's animal magnetism. Okay. Which is like, okay, whatever. (laughs) They were really into animal magnetism back in the day. So they thought that it was actually produced. I think animal magnetism was a word that they used for hypnosis?
1: I don't really know anything about it. I, I th-
2: think it was. I just think it sounds hilarious. So they probably thought that hypnosis manifested these things. They okay. didn't They didn't even attach it to ghosts.
1: Yeah, I know that they were like very interested in the idea of like looking at spiritualism as if it were a spiritual science. So the idea was yeah. to kind of like take the, um, the superstition out of it. Yeah. They wanted it to be a spiritual
2: science. Where we get a lot of our stories, of a ports, comes from a weird place. The founder of Stanford University, his name was Leland. Mm-hmm. He and his wife lost their son, Leland Jr., when he was just 15. Okay, They were on a an overseas trip doing, like, archaeological tourism, as was popular with white, rich white guys mm-hmm. back during that time period, mm-hmm. and their son died, and they had a very difficult time with this. Uh, his brother, Leland's brother Thomas, was very into spiritualism, And he suggested that they start to attend some seances and maybe they could communicate with their son Mm -hmm. and receive some closure that way. Very, very common for that time period, mid to late 1800s. There's even rumors today that Leland started Stanford University because of those seances. Wow. They met a medium by the name of Maude Lord Drake at a seance in New York City that they attended with President Ulysses S. Grant. Wow. (laughs) So they were all attending seances together. They went to a bunch of seances in Paris. Mm -hmm. It was a big deal for them. Yeah. Leland's brother, Thomas, at the same time, he had founded the Victorian Association of Progressive Spiritualists in Australia. Okay. And he held hundreds and hundreds of seances during this time period. He... Started to notice apports. There were so many apports that were happening that he starts to send them to Stanford University.
1: Wow! So he's experiencing so many of these apports during his own research seances yeah. that he's basically just kind of funneling that information back home.
2: I want to read you a bit of an article here. This came out a few years ago mm-hmm. in Stanford University's own magazine. They still have these apports. Wow! They, so still, they still have, have everything. Them there? Everything that oh, he sent man. them.
1: I would love to see that.
2: It's just after 10 a.m. on February morning, and university archivist Maggie Kimball, 80, is running at full throttle. She's busy moving the Special Collections Department into its new home at Green Library, and the idea that a magazine article that might draw curiosity seekers to the Welton apports clearly gives her pause. Nevertheless, she grabs the keys and heads for the room where the mysterious objects are stored. People think, oh my god, this is weird, Kimball says, but most archivists deal with oddities, whether it's somebody's false teeth, locks of hair, or bizarre things you find in their papers. Typically, she gets one call a year from someone asking to see the Welton apports. Once, it was a student doing a project for history class. A couple years ago, it was a couple of modern-day spiritualists who placed their hands over the objects, apparently trying to get a sense of their auras. Most recently, it was a TV film crew. Kimball unlocks the storage room and goes to a book trolley loaded with 26 gray archival boxes, each tied with pink string. She pulls one out, opens it, and gingerly extracts an empty tortoise shell about the size of a tea saucer. The story is that when this materialized, the tortoise was still in it, Kimball says. It lived out the rest of its days in Thomas Welton's garden. Thomas Welton is his brother, Mm -hmm. Leland's brother. Other items in the boxes. A coconut husk adorned with seashells, children's slates with barely legible chalk scribblings, and pieces of Egyptian papyrus with faint hieroglyphics. A handwritten note on one identifies it as a message from the priests of Osiris calling for sacrifice, quote, unto the exalted of the sun, Ramses. Ew. So there's at Stanford University, mm-hmm. one of the most well respected <laughs> universities in the world. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of these... That's so cool. ...spiritualist items. Oh,
1: I want to see them!
2: Uh, They include box one, seeds, arrowheads, shark teeth, pottery shards. Box two has slates with written messages on them, so spirit slates.
1: So these... are Are you telling me that the slates appeared...
2: I think Or that, is the
1: writing technically considered a porting? I think a, that the writing is considered a porting. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, just kind of cool. because it
2: showed up out of nowhere. You know, obviously yeah. there was chalk involved somewhere. No, it
1: totally makes sense.
2: Uh, they uh, had a human shoulder blade well, that appeared. Just uh-oh. randomly appeared during one of these seances.
1: Somebody's trying to get rid of body parts during a <laughs> seance. <laughs> Maybe. Just hoist it onto the <laughs>
2: table when it's all dark. The physical medium that was... Performing these apports, who yeah. was bringing these th- these things in ostensibly from this the, the other side? Yeah, his name was Charles Bailey. Okay, he was huge in Australia at that time. In 1890, uh, he was noticed by Thomas Welton, and so it was actually Thomas Welton who who helped bring this guy's stuff over mm. to the United States. Okay, well, in 1902, Bailey held a séance at Stanford's home and impressed him with abundant showers of metal that fell from the ceiling in the dark room and for 12 years he gave regular seances to Stanford and they were documented and given to Stanford University along with all of those reports which make up the collection some of the other things he, he produced small birds so it wasn't what? just tortoises it was small birds that were being yeah uh, produced. Here's the problem though. Oh no. At I think one, I know where you're
1: going with this. At
2: one of Charles Bailey's uh, seances, yeah, he like stunned everybody <laughs> because these birds just appeared and yeah. started flying around. Yeah. And then the the guy that he had borrowed the birds from stood up in the audience. <laughs> uh, no. You know what? This is literally where did the lighter fluid come from? It is,
1: it is. <laughs> well, where did the lighter fluid come from?
2: But again, here you have this this theme that keeps continuing every yeah. time we talk about spiritualism, yeah. whether it's the spirit slates. They're magicians. Yeah, a lot of these guys are magicians.
1: Yeah, I mean, you go again if you want a deeper dive into spiritualism, absolutely watch our, the Spirit Slates episode <laughs> because we do a pretty good deep dive on the spiritualist movement. But you're right. I mean, what we're looking at is a lot of tricks of the trade for magicians, and most magicians would be able to spot it right away.
2: Fraudulent mediumship. Yeah, they, they refer to it as. Yes, and uh, it's sad because a lot of the people who were stunned yeah. by this oh my God, one of them being stanford and his sister-in-law yeah i mean grieving their dead son
1: you know spiritualism at its peak so many many people all over the world were so wrapped up in it and most of those people were grieving and it's so yeah. sad it's so terrible
2: that story ends kind of sadly because uh, Jane never feels like she ever gets to communicate with her yeah. son. She attended so many seances. There were a few where she reported light anomalies, but there was never a full manifestation. Or Jane. And she eventually says, These people are all frauds. Yeah. I want nothing to do with this. Uh, her husband, Leland, uh, he he was done well before her. In yeah. fact, he tried to get their family lawyer to be like, Hey,
1: we need to stop. We got
2: to figure this thing out. Yeah. We got to stop all of this nonsense because they were spending lots of time and money Mm -hmm. she eventually says it's all fraudulent i don't want anything to do with it there were a lot of other smart people who were into this stuff though yeah uh charles darwin and his partner Mm -hmm. were also into this stuff yeah alfred russell wallace british naturalist and co-developer of the theory of natural selection with charles darwin researched the emerging phenomenon of apports Mm -hmm. he reported that one woman named nicole was very good at apporting flowers In one 1867 seance, she suddenly held 15 chrysanthemums that just appeared on the table. That's cool. Even today, there are some people who are very smart, who are studying the Aport phenomenon. Mm -hmm. One of them is Stanley Krippner. Uh, We watched some of his videos talking about these different uh, seances that he's attended where he has watched things apart.
1: Yeah, he's a parapsychologist.
2: He's a parapsychologist. Mm -hmm. He uh, is a professor of psychology at Saybrook University. And he was the director of the Mammonides Medical Center and Dream Research Laboratory in Brooklyn. Cool. Some people might be familiar with his book, Dream Telepathy, where they had some really cool scientific studies about dream telepathy. I
1: like both of those words. It's got one
2: of the coolest, like, old vintage covers, too. That's awesome. I think they just reissued it for, like, the 30th or 50th anniversary of the book. Yeah. It's really great. You should definitely check it out if you're interested at all in, like, telepathy. Yeah. Back in 1994... Kripner and his research team, many of which who were highly skeptical of paranormal phenomena, mm-hmm. they traveled to Brazil to meet with Amir Amidin, who was gaining a lot of traction in that area for being able to produce apports, gotcha. things out of just thin air. He claims that he and his team observed over 90 objects appearing midair and dropping to the table right okay. in front of them.
1: Fascinating.
2: They were included semi-precious stones medallions, and even jewelry. This is a passage from uh, the book Weird, Paranormal Tales of Apports and Manifestations. According to Krippner, there were stories of how one woman who met him was asked what she was looking for in Brazil but hadn't found it yet. She said, I've been looking for an emerald. I've not found an emerald. Amadin told her to close her hand and put his hand over top of hers, and when she opened her hand, the emerald was there. Krippner stated that there was a second woman that he spoke to. He said, quote, "What are you looking for?" And she said, "Oh, I'd like a gold bracelet." So he took tin foil from little pads of butter and arranged them into a circular form, put them around her wrist, and right before her eyes, they turned into a gold bracelet.
1: This is like the, the best pickup. <laughs> Isn't ever right this guy's manifesting jewelry out of nowhere for this woman
2: even even this though that sounds like a magic trick that yeah. sounds like street magic yeah to me.
1: it definitely does
2: but krippner's a very smart guy he continued to research this stuff krippner writes whenever i encounter a psychic claimant or a claimant medium having a background in magic this goes through my mind i think how could a magician perform these feats So, this is a deliberation I bring to me whenever I'm investigating what we call spontaneous cases. In many, I can figure out how a magician would perform those feats, those effects, which immediately put the effect of some type of suspicion on me. So, as Amadon was talking, a number of people were very skeptical, and others were very open. On a walk to dinner, bright-colored stones kept falling out of nowhere at people's feet, and people were delighted and they got to keep them. Mm -hmm. It's hard to figure out how a bright-colored stone could fall out of nowhere unless he was tossing them up in the air, which, of course, he wasn't. We could watch them. And a number of other things would happen spontaneously. Blood would appear in a chalice, or at least something that looked like blood would appear in a chalice. Strange markings would appear on people's doors. So people left Brazil with all sorts of experiences. Weird. That's (laughs) f***ing creepy. Most interesting were religious medallions, which go back maybe a hundred years, with Latin inscriptions on them. Fortunately, I was able to photograph these because later they were stolen from my apartment. The design on the religious medallion had some connection to the person whose feet it landed. This is going to become a common theme. Pierre Rall focused on the ones that seemed to be written in Latin because he had a background in knowledge of, of Latin and was originally from Europe. The medallions that happened to me were more generic in nature in terms of showing Jesus Christ with a lamb, the symbology of a lamb, and Jesus sacrificing himself for the benefit of humankind. Even though Amir was raised Muslim and not Christian, all of the medallions had some connection with Christianity.
1: Weird. And also, like, it reminds me of what you said earlier, which is like, they're the things that uh, that are appearing are like hyper-specific to that
2: person. Krippner returned with, quote, a college student who was very, very skeptical. Krippner thought that it was essential to have someone skeptical with him. So the apports started happening again, and this skeptic was there with him to watch it all. Okay. This is what Krippner says. From time to time, he would say, I think something's going to happen. And then immediately, Ruth called the physician on our team to take his pulse and take his pH reading because he had acid feelings in his mouth, like something was going to happen. That's kind of a weird thing. Like, he started tasting, like, acid or metal in his mouth. Weird. And then immediately, something would pop out of the air. Like, he could taste the psychosphere.
1: Oh, we're getting a lot of (laughs) pop culture references. This one.
2: When we did the statistics, the acid reading was high, higher than average. It didn't reach statistical significance, but he was right when he said he tasted acid. He had an acid feeling. Again, the pulse and the heart rhythm were very irregular before and after the apports would happen. Interesting. There was a Brazilian senator who came with his wife, and he told his wife about Amir, and he asked, could Amir produce something? Amir said, well, it depends on the spirits, but I think the spirits like her. Then, plunk, a ring came out of nowhere and fell to the floor. It fit her finger exactly, and she was very happy. She now had a souvenir from the spirit world, so to speak. Roberto Crema, who was a psychologist on our team, said to Amir, My daughter's having her 12th birthday, and she's looking forward to a gift. Well, he said, it depends on the spirits. I can't do this myself. And then, plunk, out of nowhere on the floor, came a little ring with 12 rhinestones in it, and it fit his daughter's finger Perfectly, he told us the next day. The most common objects were colored stones. These are what we call milled stones. You take ordinary stones, you run them through a tumbler, and they come out looking like semi-precious stones. Several dozens of these appeared. If they landed in front of a person, that person got to keep them. Once we got back home, I did the statistics, and we had an anomaly for each of these events that correlated significantly, interestingly enough, with the geomagnetic field. Mm. The higher the geomagnetic level, the more anomalous the experience. It was just the opposite of what we found in our dream tool under the experiments, that the lower the geometric field, the more likely telepathy was. Which is funny because that correlates to geomagnetic storms, which we talk about all the time. Yeah. About how, like, when there's geomagnetic storms, your dreams are up. Yeah, yeah. They don't, like... It's like you're not connected to the grid. Yeah. But they found that every time one of those reports would happen it was when the geomagnetic field was a lot higher because they were measuring all that at the time. Hmm. Pretty neat. Neat. Pretty cool. How often can a magician know what size ring your daughter's wearing, you know? Yeah. That's kind of strange. Yeah. It's weird. I I wish Connor was here. but He's out gallivanting
1: with his buddies. I know. We really could have used him for this because he could have talked us through all the magic stuff. I know. I want to ask him how he would perform in a port. Yeah, we need the great Randini here. He would... uh, The Conjurer.
2: Huh. You recognize that number? Mm Mm-mm. They just texted me a video. Okay. Let me, uh, I'll, I'll screencast it. We can watch it together.
4: Brother Connor has spent too much time divulging in the secrets of the great and mysterious Brotherhood of Magicians.
0: For the Brotherhood, the Brotherhood, Abracadabra!
4: If you ever want to see your beloved producer, The Conjurer, again, he must agree to stop discussing tricks on this silly little haunted objects podcast, even in the name of discussing paranormal mysteries. The choice is both his and yours. Guys? Guys, I can't get out.
2: Oh, he's at magic camp. Yes. Oh, that's why they've got his wrists all tied up and everything. And yeah,
1: teaching practicing. He's practicing how to, practicing how to escape just from practicing.
2: bonds. Well, I'm glad he's having fun.
1: Yeah, good for him.
2: Well, we miss you, Connor. I know Hurry. you're listening.
1: Hurry back soon, Connor.
0: This episode is brought to you by the New Kirk Museum of the Paranormal Membership Program. Become a museum member and take part in live paranormal investigations. Receive Dana's Magic of the Month subscription box. Access in-depth artifact case files. And gain access to hundreds of hours of exclusive content available only to members. To become a member, visit patreon.com paramuseum.
2: So it's almost like... A lot of very smart people were proving to a lot of other smart people that they believed that there was something to the idea of a port. Yeah. doesn't take too long before weird stuff like that makes its way to the military. Yeah. And then, of course, the military goes, how can we weaponize this? Yeah. It's time to return back to one of our favorite places... Yeah. The Stanford Research Institute.
1: Oh, man. SRI. Kit
2: Green, Hal Putoff.
1: Oh, we got Putoff. Russell Targ. Oh, Targ's there.
2: We talked a lot about the experiments that were happening there in our Uri Geller episode. Guess what? We get to talk about Uri again.
1: Are those guys all in the weeds (laughs) in this? Are they all over this?
2: It's funny that it keeps coming back to Stanford. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff happening at Stanford, and it yeah. even we're even seeing in this episode that the founding of Stanford has some weirdness to it, too. Yeah. So they've been interested in this type of stuff for a long, long time. Yeah,
1: they've really, they've been at the forefront of it for a uh-huh. long time, and they've not really hidden the fact that they've been doing all of these things either.
2: Well, it's probably because the CIA is making them <laughs> Oh <not> boy. <laughs> The CIA was uh, covertly funding a lot of the psychokinetic experiments, psychic experiments that were happening at SRI back in the 70s. Yes, as we know. As was, strangely enough, astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Yeah. The sixth man to walk on the moon. He got very strange after he came back and decided there's something to consciousness research. There's something to... Uh, psychic research. We should be putting some time and money into this. And he did. He put his money where his mouth was. It's very
1: smart of him. So
2: he helped fund a lot of the stuff, which meant that he was hanging around SRI when Uri Geller was there.
1: I would. Can you imagine?
2: The stories that are coming out of SRI, it sounds like it was the coolest Ah, place to be in the 70s. Jacques Valli was there too. Yes, he was. You think there's a modern equivalent of SRI right now? Travel
3: Channel. (laughs) No. (laughs)
2: I hope not. I was going to say, like, they're trying to make Skinwalker Ranch that, but it's not, it just doesn't have that flavor because there's not enough,
3: like, really, really smart people doing this. I think it really goes in waves of sort of, like, that funding and that governmental sort of interest because anything academic or scientific requires that funding up front or it doesn't happen at all. Mm -hmm. And so I think this was a time period where there was money flying around. Yeah. Probably, like, that post-60s, you know, sort of, like, hippie new age era with money flying around. And a lot of that was funded. So there were a lot of smart people, government intrigue. Yeah. And people would just kind of group to where the money was. And I think that we see little glimmers of that now. I think you see it with To the Stars a little bit. Yeah. You see yeah. a little bit with like Skinwalker. And I think that that's part of it. Skinwalker's had some of that funding, and then it sort of faded away or dried up or passed hands. Yeah. And then now it's sort of like, yeah, that's funny now when it's like a TV show. So <laughs> I think, I think that there's like, you know, time periods of that money today, but it's a little less money, I think secrecy is a little bit higher too so where there is money we don't really know about it it's all black bag black ops yeah
2: you know what the new kirk museum should be the new sri which is why you should become a museum member at patreon.com slash paramuseum help (laughs) Help us build our lab
1: help us we
2: literally are building cool shit like we're doing weird experiments and stuff all the time we just need uh Couple mil.
1: I want I want Putov's <laughs> eyebrows. That's my goal. I think
2: I'm probably gonna have those before you do. That's true. Patreon.com slash paramuseum. Help Hire. us help us become the new SRI. Hire those guys. Or CIA could f- covertly fund us, and send us some money. We keep asking Are for they gonna, it. Is
1: CIA gonna join our Patreon?
2: They did comment on one of our videos. They did. We're they did. <laughs> well, at the SRI, at the Stanford Research Institute. Uh, Edgar Mitchell was hanging out in one of these labs. So jealous. And he had this to say. He gave an interview in 1974 uh, to the Pacific Sun. And in it, he talked about one of the apport experiences that he had while he was hanging out at the SRI lab. We were finishing lunch in the cafeteria at SRI and Uri Geller was eating a dish of ice cream. He bit, or he did a good job, so he got ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think his spoon just went... Yeah, did he? Ha-
1: was he messing with the spoon?
2: <laughs> he bit down on something in the ice cream, and it cut his mouth, oh, so yeah. he was swearing at it. I fished it out of the ice cream, scraped it off, washed it off, and was surprised to see what it was. It was the ornament part of a tie clasp that I had lost in Houston two years before.
1: Oh my god.
2: Edgar was absolutely sure it was the same, adding... I had never been to the SRI building before, and Uri had never been to Houston.
1: But that's more of what you were talking about, like something that only you would go like, what the f*** is this about? It's a
2: consistent thing in a port.
1: That's so weird.
2: About 30 minutes later, when we'd gone back to the lab, the clasp part of it fell to the floor behind Hal Putoff. And about 30 minutes after that, as we were standing up in the laboratory, another tie pin showed up. I'd lost that in Houston at the same time as the other one.
1: So here's the thing, like, for argument's sake, Uri couldn't have even faked this because he would have had to have snuck into this guy's hotel room two years prior or wherever it was, stolen the tie clasps, held on to them for two years, hoped that this opportunity would have happened for him. Like, it's... That's so weird.
3: Sounds
2: like some CIA shit
3: to me. I know.
2: Well, listen, <laughs> this 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 comes back. This comes back around to even some of the current stuff we were just talking about. Okay. Because in this book, Weird Paranormal Tales of Apports and Manifestations, the author writes, I wrote Hal Putoff to ask about this story and to see if the metal objects that he was testing for to the Stars Academy.
1: Oh, so the oh, the
2: the UFO parts, the metamaterials. Yeah might be related to the apport phenomenon he'd previously experienced at SRI. Yeah. It occurred to me that the tiny pieces of metal are more likely to be apports or purposefully provided by the intelligence instead of believing that pieces were falling off flying saucers.
1: So, so, wait, say that again.
2: So the author believes that it makes more sense that whatever it was they were studying was purposefully provided by the intelligence and not something that fell off of a flying saucer. Oh, right? Weird. Because it's making something yeah. to push people somewhere to <gasps> do something or to find something Ugh. that's specific to what they're doing.
1: I'm scared.
2: That's a creepy thought.
1: That's a very hellierish
2: thought. I know. Yeah, it comes very back around.
1: Strange.
2: We actually have a Hellier aport story. We
1: do. That we what don't that? really
2: ever talk about. <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll come back to that in a minute. That's
1: weird. Um, Thank you for that clarification.
2: Isn't that weird? That is very weird. Uh, but Putov didn't really have an answer. He said they'd analyze the materials and determine their components. And that's where he left it. The thing that's interesting to me, like that comment about a ports is very interesting because this whole time everyone's like, these are pieces of a UFO or a crashed UFO, right? Yeah, yeah. And when they study them, it's something that shouldn't exist. It's like a bunch of different metals that yeah. apparently shouldn't be together. But it's almost as if they're not from a ufo it's like it's the phenomena itself going well you're looking for something that shouldn't exist so i'm gonna make something for you that doesn't exist so you know you should be looking yeah or, or in this direction or just keep looking or just exactly is
1: more sinister. A is it sinister, more sinister
2: or is it just like maybe that's just me being paranoid? You mother f- think, you know, everything these yeah, days. I'm yeah. going to show you that you don't.
1: Ooh, I don't know. I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time.
2: Right. That's really weird. Because if these objects appear yeah. to people with meaning. Behind they're, they're,
1: that means that, I mean, and, and you've got so many instances already, just this episode. Yeah. But it's all, also like case. people are
2: getting like they're getting birthday presents from yeah. that one guy rings that fit them perfectly. So, like, if there's a bunch of people sitting around going, man, I really wish we had UFO parts. Yeah. And then they appear. Yeah, that's so weird. Oh, my God. I don't know.
1: Have they? Uh, I mean, you you probably wouldn't. know.
2: Makes me think then. of the coal. Yeah. What was the coal trying to get us to pay attention to?
1: Well, I mean, it definitely kept you coming back.
2: Since we're on the subject of reports, and we just talked about one that happened to Uri at a laboratory that freaked everybody out, Mm -hmm. here's another good one. This other story Mm -hmm. that involves Uri Mm -hmm. comes from Andrea Pujaric, who we talked about in a little bit. He's the guy who brought Uri to the United States, maybe working for the CIA, allegedly. Mm -hmm. He writes... During July 1975, I was exposed to a short but rapid sequence of teleportations while staying in the new Otani Hotel in Tokyo in the room next to Uri Geller. At about 10.20 p.m. one evening, after a press conference during which a miscalculation upset Geller, his secretary Trina and photographer Shippy departed to send a telex message. I left Geller in his room, unlocked the door to my room, and went in. Within a few seconds, I saw a small object fall to the floor, not from a great height, but within one foot of the drawn window curtains. It was a pair of nail clippers that did not belong to me. When I took it next door to Uri, he told me it belonged to him and would normally be kept zipped up in a leather case from which he showed me it was missing. I took Uri back to my room to show him where the nail clippers had fallen, but we got no further than opening my door when an explosion and crash occurred. Broken glass was found all over the area by the door and in the hotel corridor. One glass tumbler from my bathroom was now missing. One hotel guests in the corridor saw the flying glass, but could offer no explanation. We cleaned up the broken glass. Uri returned it to his room and I to mine. Almost immediately, I saw the sudden appearance of a magnifying lens in the middle of the floor on the carpet. Previously, it had been on the desk more than six feet away. All this had taken only three to four minutes. Mm. What is that all about?
1: I don't know. It like, almost feels like it's part of, like, like it's something that happens in the physical environment when that energy is being raised or when that energy is cycling properly. <laughs> like, it's just shit just popping around all over the place.
2: Also in 1974, uh, John Lennon experienced an apport. Mm-hmm. This is according to Uri Geller. So John had seen a, had a UFO sighting that same time. He kind of talked about that a few times. Okay. Fairly, fairly famous, common knowledge. This one is not... According to Geller, John had gotten up at his hotel in the middle of the night and he saw light coming from under the door. Thinking there might be a fire, he tried to wake Yoko Ono but could not. When he opened the door, he encountered bug-like creatures. He attempted to attack them, but they mentally held him back. All of a sudden, John Lennon is awake Mm -hmm. as if he had had a dream, but he's holding a bronze egg-type object in his hand. He told Ono what had occurred, and she believed him. Later, according to Geller, he was having coffee with Lennon at a nearby restaurant, and Lennon handed him the object and said, This might be my ticket to another planet, but I don't want it.
1: Whoa. Geller has had
2: the object on him ever since, yeah. and he's never had it analyzed.
1: I want to touch that egg. I do, too. Oh, John Lennon's egg, alien do you think, egg.
2: Do you think Uri would let us touch that egg? Nope. Hold it in our hand. For I don't a know
1: if he's ever let anyone touch it.
2: We're basically best friends with him now.
1: Yeah, do you think that John Lennon got got visited by the CIA? I think he might.
2: <laughs> I think he I think he might have. Right? I can't help but think about that all the time. Yeah. I'm going to touch that egg. <laughs> I'm going to touch that egg. Uri listened to the podcast and shared the podcast. It was
1: very cool.
2: And then he sent me his phone number.
1: Oh my God. I have
2: not used yet. I have not used his phone number. You
1: don't want to like, that's, that's a special thing.
2: But I'm going to ask him if I can touch that egg. I want to touch that f***ing egg.
1: I don't really like the Beatles. Sorry, Beatles fans. I know you're probably going to hate me forever. But I did not know that John Lennon had, a, had an alien encounter experience. I had never heard of this story before. So that's pretty interesting that they were like bug-like creatures.
2: It's common. All these stories, they, they have so much stuff in common. Yeah. There is a file that was declassified that comes from DARPA. Uh, It was a RAND think tank for the Advanced Research Projects Agency, eventually known as DARPA. Mm -hmm. This is from 1973, and it's titled, uh, A Working Note Prepared for the Advanced Research Projects Agency on Paranormal Phenomena, a Briefing and a Net Assessment Study. It says, In this briefing, our major concern is with paranormal phenomena that meet two criteria. They have the potential for military applications in the foreseeable future, and two, they are the subject of experimental investigation from the beginning. Soviet researchers have tended to concentrate on experimental subjects that appear to display outstanding abilities. It's clear, however, that the Russians believe that subjects can be trained for certain types of skills, notably telepathy and psychokinesis. It would not be conceptually difficult, for example, to imagine the utility of psychokinesis, if feasible, in disrupting the electrical systems associated with an ICBM's guidance program. Yeah. So they're already, like, thinking— Psychic
1: spies, immediately.
2: Psychic spies. Yeah. We can use their telekinesis to disrupt (sighs) missiles. Yeah. So that's where they're going. But they also studied apports.
1: I mean, I'm not shocked—
2: Welk claims, based on many Soviet sources, that the so-called apport technique is likely to meet valuable intelligence needs. When fully developed, this technique would make possible the abduction of actual objects, including documents, in enemy territory and their transfer to friendly territory. Objects so abducted are known as apports. They could be returned to the point of origin without the enemy becoming aware of this temporary abduction."
1: I mean, (laughs) the thing they're also not saying there is not only that, but you could plant.
2: Oh, yes. You know. Wow. You could frame people for stuff. Yeah. There was a report done for the CIA and the DIA, and part of the assessment was actually on James Randi, our favorite skeptic. Yeah, it says this magician, Mr. James Randi, claimed that the parapsychological researchers at an academic facility in St. Louis, Missouri, were taken in by trickery and that most, if not all, parapsychological research is suspect. These claims are, in fact, gross distortions since the researchers involved never stated they had made observations of psychic abilities in formal experiments. Thus, it is apparent that Mr. Randi has presented an extremely one sided view of this hoax attempt. He even claims that all of the parapsychological research is of question. Questionable value. Most TV and press coverage thus far also reflect these views. As a result, the public is given highly biased perspectives of this research area in general. It's clear that Mr. Randy is solely interested in promoting his image as a clever magician Mm -hmm. and in enhancing his career as a showman at the expense of reporting accuracy. So, literally, the government is making fun of James Randy (laughs) in official documents.
1: The the government is like, this guy sucks. (laughs) Can get this guy out of here.
2: I want everyone to know, too, that when we did the Uri Geller episode, yeah. James Randi ended up being kind of a footnote to that one, because everybody knows the rivalry. But Dana talked so much trash I'm, about James Randi, I had to cut most of it out, because it turned into such a... It was very funny. I couldn't even say his name without Dana being like, that guy. I don't give a shit about James Randi.
1: <laughs> Once again...
2: Clearly, neither does the DIA (laughs) or the CIA. Same. They didn't like him at all. (laughs) Edgar Mitchell uh, had a foundation for research into extraterrestrial and extraordinary experiences. Badass. He conducted a poll and found that 61% of UFO experiencers have observed apports and materializations. So it's very common, not just a spiritualist thing, but it's very common in... All kinds of high strangeness cases. All sorts of phenomena. But it's all say. connected. I don't yeah. know why more people don't realize that all this stuff is all related to each other. I mean, so, are
3: UFOs just apports?
2: It's another, it just adds credence to that idea that the paranormal itself is giving you what you, yeah. what you ask for or what you need.
1: Yeah, it's mirroring it back to you.
2: What do you think the phenomena is trying to tell us when it gave us an apport uh, at that cabin when we were shooting Hellier?
3: apparently it's a side effect of the larger hole because these things are all happening in clusters
2: we've only really talked about this story a few times and even then there's like not a ton to talk about with it Mm -hmm. Carl you probably remember it best because you're the one who goes through all the footage and everything which funny enough there's not even footage of this but
3: it's so weird that's why you don't see it really on Hellier because um, you know as a documentarian I like to illustrate our stories that we're telling with footage. And at that point in time, when we were shooting Hellier, I didn't really have any footage from this story. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want it to just be talking heads for too long. But in season one, we were at that cabin in Jenkins, Kentucky. And um, I guess the other reason I didn't want to talk about it either was I didn't want to draw too much attention to the fact that I was a smoker back then. (laughs) That's true. <laughs> We're blowing up your shit talking about this on the live streams. All right, my parents know by now. Uh so basically, you know, like like once in a while Dane and I would go out on the porch, have a cigarette, and we had a little uh plastic soda bottle where we put our butts in because we didn't want to make a mess of this guy's nice Airbnb property. Yeah. Um this was after a night or two, the next morning we took off to go look for david's house or whatever we were doing um and i think i at least had a cigarette there in that morning i put it there and i was aware of the fact that this butt bottle was sitting on the porch next to one of the the pillars of the porch because i remember having the thought of whether or not i should like hide it behind that pillar if it was it was too outstanding mm-hmm. you know yeah cuz that guy he he lived like right
2: down the road His and he had like a bunch did, of yeah. cameras and stuff. So, we, you know, I think we were extra careful
3: about yeah, making sure we didn't, sure we didn't leave rude. any. Yeah, we didn't want to be rude or yeah. anything or like, you know, leave cigarette butts out. Yeah. We took off. We spent our day in town. We did all that. We got back that evening. And when we got back, there was no butt bottle <laughs> on the porch. and. You know, at that point, again, we were aware that the owner would sort of drive past the property throughout the day. So we figured he just saw it there on the porch and did some tidying up and grabbed it and took it. Sure. But what was weird about it was the next morning when we got into the car, (laughs) um, this time I was going with you guys because I was going to film you guys a little bit while we were driving wherever we were going into town. And as I sat in the back seat of the car... The butt bottle was in the back seat, mm-hmm. like in the, the foot well the, uh, area. Of the oh, back I forgot. Seat. Yeah, you were the one who noticed it. Yeah, it was there in the car. And I was like, what the heck? You know, and, and the best I could think, I asked Rashad, our second cameraman, uh, later when we, when we May he rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the aliens give him back to us. Uh, I asked him later, I was like, dude, did you, like, grab this or something? Did you think that, like, we should keep using it throughout the day or something like that? And he's like, dude, what are you talking about? I didn't grab your friggin' cigarette butt
1: <laughs> bottle. Like, it's so random.
3: Yeah. This very nice guy. Yeah. Like, we yeah, chatted great. with him for, like, an hour when we checked. He was awesome. About the whole area. He was the one that was telling us about caves and, yeah. and weird prints and stuff. Um, so this guy... Would have had to be so passive aggressively yeah. annoyed that we were cleaning up after ourselves with our with keeping our butts in a bottle mm-hmm. that he took it while we were gone during the day. Mm-hmm. And he came back after we were there at night. Yeah. And we we stay up late. We were up. And that was probably the night that we were up until 3 I'm talking oh, to Steve yeah, about yeah. the IP addresses. Yeah. So he would have had to, like, come back. After we were sleeping in the early hours of the dawn, try every door until he found one open and chuck it into our car? Like, Yeah,
1: it's so... The
3: only rational explanation doesn't make any sense. No, oh. it
1: doesn't. It really doesn't make any sense at all.
3: One of the things that's kind of weird about it, too, that it always makes it stand out to me was it was one of, like, kind of two or three kind of, like, stories that were just didn't really fit into the narrative or we didn't have footage for it. And so we kept them to ourselves. But yeah. The rest of it was all on camera for the most part. And I remember reading a a review of Hellier Season 1 when it came out. And this always stood out to me. And I've I've saved it. I've got it here with me. So this was a review of Hellier Season 1 posted on the website called Diagonal 22. And it was posted by someone using the screen name of Thundernoggin. It was a very nice review. But he had this paragraph where he mentions... Speaking of which, I'd be curious to see where season two of Hellier winds up. I say that because I'm curious to see if electronic disturbances start to become a problem or if the cast start to experience weird anomalies or inconsistencies in their surrounding environment, missing items, manifestations, or subtle things being a little off or not how they remember them. This guy here is literally calling out like, I wonder when apports are going to start happening to the team. And they were happening already. already.
1: Yeah. It's so
2: weird.
3: As Greenfield would say, it, it adds to the credential. It adds mm-hmm. to the credential.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, even from talking from the beginning, we've had personal encounters yeah. with with the ports. Mm-hmm. I have one that I experience semi regularly. Yeah. That, that's, I won't, it's a story for another time, but my friends and I tried to perform an exorcism that we printed off the internet once years ago. And it f***ed everybody up for so long that to this day, every once in a while, there will be a rusty nail that will apport somewhere in my vicinity. Yeah. I've had them, like, fall out of my hair. I've had one, one time there was one, and a lot of the times when I find them, they're sticking straight up. So they're, like, on the head of it, and they're sticking straight up. I've
1: seen it happen.
2: There was one that uh, fell off of uh, the top of a ceiling fan Mm -hmm. in the old apartment.
1: Yeah, we haven't had
2: any of that stuff happen here yet. I
1: saw one. I found
2: one in your shoe once. In the shoe. Sometimes I find them in my pockets. One time there was one. Um, I walked outside into the uh, the driveway, and right on the front of our door, yeah, it was just sitting straight up on its head, pointing straight up. Dumb. But there was other <laughs> up shit that happened. To everybody. It, typically, it seemed to happen in like three year cycles or so, mm. and we haven't had one since we moved here. So I don't know, but uh, every once in a while
3: I'll hear tink, 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 and I'll look over and there's a rusty nail like from a framework element. When we start talking about the idea of whether it's ghosts manifesting into our physical realm, whether we're talking about UFOs manifesting into this realm, if that's how they work. Um, even just kind of like going back to the hellier background, which for me has influenced a lot of the ways that I look at these, we're looking at like reality transforming or reality shifting (laughs) type activity. Massive. Yeah. Massive like, you know. Implications are scary. Yes. Just that spiritual physical world dynamic, Mm -hmm. you know, at, at this root level of Even then when you go into that idea of sort of reflection of just kind of like the phenomenon is reflecting what the people who join the case are into at that moment. So there's a very sort of like fabric of reality nature to a lot of this stuff that feels like this is. And it's part of why I'm surprised it's not more common as a story because it feels very reflective of the sort of like roots of paranormal investigation in all forms where it's a sort of reflective manifesting idea of yeah. something coming seemingly out of nowhere into this physical space
2: yeah and everything that i've read about this and there's very little there's yeah. not a whole was, like we were talking there's not much stuff on a port no
1: they're really i i looked and there's there are people talking about
2: it but there's so few and
1: it's it's kind of there's all over the
2: place n- next to nothing yeah um, and, and when it is discussed, it's usually like a footnote in something yeah, bigger, that, you know? that's
1: what I was coming up against.
2: So there's a couple different, there's a couple different ways of looking at this. Cause a lot of the time it just happens spontaneously, mm-hmm. but then you see stuff like Stanley Krippner going to this place with his researchers and his researchers are asking for things to be manifested yeah. and then they do. Yeah. And then you have the other, you have people who like, there's not a medium involved in it, yeah. but it's, it seems like it's almost their own desire that manifest this stuff. Wow. And I think that, like Carl said earlier, what if that's the way that UFOs are working? What yeah. if that's the way Bigfoot's working? What if certain people are able to access that part of themselves that can manifest those things into yeah. their reality? Yeah. A guy by the name of Nick Whitham, uh, he is the trustee of the Banyan Retreat in the U.K., mm-hmm. Uh, it, the Banyan Retreat is kind of like a, they do a lot of spiritualist mediumship stuff. Okay. It's like a day retreat. Same kind of way we'd think of like Lilydale over here or gotcha. Casadega, which we've gone to numerous times. Yeah. Nick has this to say about apports. Okay. I was very fortunate to be present in the very first time that we received an apport through Scott Milligan's mediumship. And it happened, first of all, in the home circle. There were two coins apported for two of the circle members. The very first public seance we had, we had two gentlemen visiting from Canada, and the spirit world wanted to give them an apport. So midway through the sitting, they announced that they were going to attempt to try and bring something for these people. When they did, it was a coin, and the significance was the date of the coin. The two gentlemen were born two years apart from each other, and the date of the coin was dated the single year in between. If you have a look at Scott's website sometime, there's a list of all the apports, and each one of them has significance to the person. They are very good reasons why the particular item is chosen for that individual. Mm. So from the perspective of a spiritualist medium, yeah. these things are all very specific to the person that they're being given to. Yeah. Another example of an apport was, uh, that was gifted was a figurine of a man leaning against a lamppost. The father, who was on the other side, sent it to his daughter in the seance circle, and its significance was that he used to call her Lampy.
1: I'm sitting here listening to everything that you're saying, and I cannot help but think this would be so easy to fake. Yeah, for sure. It's so easy to fake. For sure. are there are these instances of it being either so specific or people don't know, like the 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 physical medium doesn't know that like innate detail about that person. And it feels as if there's like a trickster element to it where it's like, this would be so f-ing easy to fake. Like anybody could fake something like this. All you'd have to be is like, is this person distracted enough for me to lob this thing over or put it in a spot where if I bump the table perfectly, it'll fall down. on, But, they're so hyper specific to that person that there is a trickstery element to it, and it, it's very interesting.
2: You're nailing exactly what I was going to say mm. about this stuff. Is it's very easy to look at it and be like, "Wow, this is, these are magicians' yeah. tricks," or sometimes they're just not even magicians' tricks. It's just like rudimentary, like like throwing something, yeah. and then somebody else is like, "Whoa, where'd that come from?" Yeah, yeah. This though seems part and parcel to high strangeness, yeah, to the really phenomena. Does. It does again trickster in the paranormal yeah it is almost as if the fraudulence can act as that lubricant for the real phenomena to manifest yeah and so it could be like okay here's a magician's trick there's that coin yeah but even the magician is like unaware that that coin holds a very specific significance to that person yeah because things have been arranged in such a way yeah where it's just that's what was supposed to happen for that person yeah. to get that message. It's us- Maybe the delivery of it wasn't above board, yeah. but the phenomena itself and the message exists. It's still there.
1: Yeah. it's. Yeah, I was going to say it's our obsession with things happening in a linear fashion. I know. Instead of looking at it, it's taking a step back and looking top down at it. We were so obsessed with being in the moment of these experiences that, that we might Miss the reality, which is that thing is actually even if even if there was some fraudulence, even if there, like you said, if there if there was you know a magician doing something, the symbology of the object itself is so intensely I know emotional for the person, and maybe the the magician had no idea, just chose it because it was small and easy to, you know, it's just you know it's one of those things that I feel like. Even if there weren't magicians involved in half of these instances that you're talking about, I think that element of the trickster is so fascinating because it always puts the experiencer in an awkward position where they have to defend themselves. <laughs> I know. And it's sort of like it never lets you just have a thing. It never just I lets know. you. It's but It's like, can't. no, you're going to struggle. You're going to be marginalized. Yeah. You're going to be in an but, uncomfortable position. But what position. if that's the
2: point, though? Yeah,
1: I feel like it, it, it is an element of it.
2: So many of those types of stories. Like, we talk about how you manifest your own hauntings sometimes. Mm. A lot of the haunted objects that we have in the collection are just whatever. They don't really do anything for us. But when they do, it does something that's very specific to us. It's something that's meaningful to us. And some of the meaningful things that happen to other people with their like porcelain clown or Mm. their like hot topic dragon incense holder is specific to them, not to us. Mm. And so it never does anything to us. Yeah. It's almost as if, the phenomena, it can't really manifest physically here to move things around. Yeah. So it has to influence people to move things around for it yeah. to be in the right place at the right time. And a lot of the time, the people that are willing to do that are tricksters themselves. you I, I I look at this. Do you know how many times we've all accused one another, of throwing these things sure. in that cemetery? Sure, I mean, you boys too. Like, of course. There's no
1: way that you weren't all going, you're the one
2: throwing it. Yeah, we weren't ah. f-ing parapsychologists. No. I didn't take this shit as seriously back then as I do these days. It could have been anybody. Maybe it's one of the GHI guys hasn't copped to it, mm-hmm. but it still like had such a significance that I held on to it for that long. Yeah. You want to hear the end of my ghost story? Yeah. Yeah. When I was about 18, my family all moved to Florida and they asked if I wanted to go with them. And I said, no way. Uh (laughs) So my parents were about ready to head to Florida in, in like a day or two. My little sister, Katie, she was like, you have never taken me ghost hunting. I, I've always asked you to take me ghost hunting. You've never taken me. And I was like, well, this is your last opportunity. If you want to go Let's go. And she's like, can I bring, you know, my boyfriend and one of his friends? And I said, yeah, but I don't want to drive. <laughs> you guys drive. I'm not taking any equipment. We'll take flashlights, but that's it. I just don't, I don't want it to be a whole thing, but I'll, I'll take you ghost hunting. I'll show you Berkeley Cemetery because that's where they wanted to go. They're already scared on the drive in because it's terrifying. You know, it's never not scary. We get up there. It's probably around the same time, midnight, one in the morning, something like that. Again, nobody around, nothing. I'm telling them the story about the murderer the whole time we're going up, and so they're all scared, and I'm doing my best to, like, just stoke them, get them so freaked out. We get up there. They could barely walk 100 yards into the cemetery because it was so scary. They're huddled together, (laughs) like, in the middle of the cemetery. they're They're huddled together, like, looking around, and we start to hear little kids laughing. It was a common thing up there. We'd hear it all the time. They start to hear little kids laughing from the far end of the cemetery. I look straight to my straight ahead and a bit to the right where the the remains of an old church were. And I see a dude standing there. He was just, I thought he was a hunter. There's a, like a guy who's dressed like a hunter, completely modern. He's wearing like overalls. He's got a bushy red beard. And I was like, "Oh shit, I got a yelled at this guy and let him know that we're here because if he's like a hunter yeah because again that's the only people who are up there if he's a hunter i don't want him to like freak out and like shoot in our direction or anything and so i go hey man and he turns and he looks at me makes perfect eye contact with me like i could see the guy and then he just walks into the woods and i went that's weird he didn't make any noise when he walked through the brush he made zero noise whatsoever my sister and her friends they don't even see this guy and i'm like uh i think we should go i i don't know what's going on up here but this it like it unsettled me because on one hand i'm like that wasn't a ghost he didn't look like a miner yeah he wasn't he didn't have like a f-ing mining hat on and a pickaxe he looked like some guy who's a hunter up here and it freaked me out cuz i was like there's never anybody up here i'm thinking of the murderer that we encountered when we were kids. And I was like, we should go. We got to get the fuck out of here. So we got in the car and we left. They had the time of their lives. They got what they wanted. And I'm like, was that guy a ghost? Did I see a ghost? He didn't make any noise. Mm. 10 years later, Dane and I, we're doing an event with our friend, Jason Gowan. One, one of my old, he's been on the show before. He's in a lot of my stories from my youth. We're doing an event with him, and we're, like, talking about Barclay Cemetery. And every time I go back to my hometown, we meet up, and we go, and we, we go to all the places we used to go and reminisce. I told him this story because I'd never told him the story before. He's like, hang on a second. And he, like, texts somebody. And five minutes go by, and he goes, did he look like this? And he shows me a picture, and it's the f***ing guy that I saw up there. And I went, who is that? And he goes, that's Ed Bond. The guy whose body was dumped up there. Yeah. I saw that f***ing guy. It wasn't a f***ing ghost kid. No. It wasn't a f***ing ghost miner. No. It was the guy whose killer we encountered on that road. Yeah. 20 some years before
1: it was very eerie because I was with you when you saw the photo and I've heard you tell this story so many times and, and just, I've heard the description of this ghost that you saw so many times. And the picture that Gowan showed us is like dead on Gowan, every aspect of it is absolutely 100%.
2: Jason was friends with his niece. Yeah. And so he texted and he was like, do you have any photos of your uncle
1: around? Wow. He took a
2: picture. Sure enough, that's who I saw. That's why he wasn't out of time. Yeah. Is that, though, what this was about? Yeah. What this piece of coal was? Was it like Ed Bond trying to get us to go and see his body, to find his body so that his murder was solved?
1: I don't know. I don't know.
2: But I do know one thing. That's why this piece of coal is a haunted object.
0: The Haunted Objects Podcast is hosted by Greg and Dana Newkirk, produced by Connor J. Randall, with photography directed by Carl Pfeiffer, and features exclusive artifacts from the Newkirk Museum of the Paranormal. To learn more about the artifacts featured in this episode, take part in live interactive experiments, and enjoy exclusive Haunted Objects content, become a museum member at patreon.com paramuseum This has been a Planet Weird production.
4: If you ever want to see your beloved producer, The Conjurer, again, he must agree to stop discussing tricks on the Silly Haunted Objects podcast, even in the name of explaining paranormal mysteries. Either that, or you give us all of your spiritualism equipment and then Spoons. The choice is yours. And his. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs>